Hi, this is Chris McGregor of Discerning Hearts, asking for your help during this Lenten and Easter season. Support from our listeners is vital and allows us to bring you and many others high-quality spiritual programs like the one you are listening to now. It also assists us in our outreach to areas around the globe, touching literally millions of souls via the World Wide Web. Our highly rated free Discerning Hearts app allows you to access over a thousand audio files as well as video content now available on our expanding YouTube channel. We've been able to offer online spiritual seminar retreats with Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John Essef, and Deacon James Keating. The heart of our mission is to help foster authentic spiritual formation for the seeking soul so they can fully encounter the living Christ and share in his mission of healing hearts and spreading the good news to the world. Please, won't you help us to continue this important work of evangelization by donating today to DiscerningHearts.com. The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of digital media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Ignatius Press and the Augustan Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books, chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Formed Book Club. We are discussing Carl and Joseph Ratzinger's book, The Spirit of Liturgy. Uh, we already spent one session on half of the chapter on music. I think it's worthwhile, however, to spend two sessions on this chapter because Joseph Ratzinger, I believe, was probably the most important liturgist uh, of the 20th and early 21st century. And, of course, music was something he had a particular interest in. And music is an integral part of the liturgy, as Second Vatican Council told us. However, before we begin, at the end of the last session, after we stopped recording, uh, Vivian said something which we thought was worth saying again. And so, Vivian, would you do that for us? Well, we were in this digression last time about whether or not Jesus on the cross experienced the abandonment of God, because being the Son of God and in the Trinity and so on, how could that happen? And I explained after our recording was over that during a talk on this subject by a theologian, uh, whose talk was over my head, by the way, so I couldn't exactly follow what he was saying. <laughs> but what kept coming to my mind was Charles Dickens's character, Sidney Carton, the hero of Tale of Two Cities. And the reason why this came to mind is because, for those who don't know the story, Sidney Carton takes the place at the scaffold of a condemned man because they look very much alike and have been mistaken. Their identities have been mistaken before. So he comes up with this idea that he's going to take the place of this man and goes into prison and swaps places with him and then is taken to the guillotine. And uh, the whole time that he's enduring imprisonment and the mocking and everything and being taken to the scaffold, he is fully experiencing everything the condemned man would have experienced. And yet, He's a different man. But at the same time, on his way to his death, 
he starts being full of hope. And his last words, by the way, are from the gospel. Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. And it was said of him that his face was, was, was peaceful and that he was serene and so on at the very moment of his death. So I said this to, to the speaker after his talk. I said, this is the image that's come to my mind. Is this, is this helping me to understand Christ on the cross? And he was a little surprised, but he then agreed. He said, yes, I, I think it does explain this apparent contradiction that Jesus is both the son of God in the Trinity beholding God, and at the very same time, experiencing everything a man would in that death, that horrible death, uh, the just punishment of sin. And so anyway, I submit that it's Easter time. I put that out there for people's meditation and you know, comment. Think, you know, we, we wanted you to repeat that because we thought it was very important and a very beautiful thing and reminded us of, of that particular, you know, novel of Dickens and how beautiful it is. But that was a digression. Let me digress from the digression. Uh, Joseph, what is the most noble uh, poetic meter in the English language? That's a, well, I, I would say I, I am big pentameter, but what do I know? Uh, yeah, well, okay. I think that's the correct answer. Uh, because great guess. <laughs> Because one of the most beautiful statements in the entire Bible in English, uh, is in I'm a, I am the resurrection and the life. That's uh, you know, it was a providential, uh, we call it very secondary, tertiary circumstance, but that that that, that should have ended up being in English, uh, in I'm a pentameter, which was as you rightly said, it was the most noble poetic form in the English language, anyway. Well, we it, when you, you know, it's like when you do these, uh, when you click on something and click on something else, we got to go back, right? So we, we hit the back button. We're back to the text now, page 158 or 144 in my old edition. Uh, middle of the page there, important point here. It was precisely hymns and their music that provided the point of entry for Gnosticism, that deadly temptation which began to subvert Christianity from within. Now, it's interesting because you think Gnosticism might, might not be much for singing, but the fact is that it was the, it was the introduction of music, which uh, was a wedge for heresy, and that was something which Arius did. Arius was a very good composer, and he took uh, secular music, and uh, or even made up secular music, and set to it his heretical uh, ideas about Christ not really being uh, uncreated. Uh, fortunately, St. Ambrose, was also a good musician, and he then uh, set, used chant to put the orthodox version of Christology uh, into music. But as a result of this problem with, with music corrupting the liturgy, there was this parallel to the iconoclasm of the 7th century and 8th century, where they wanted to dis, you know, disallow images. They would disallow music uh, at Mass. And that was a problem, of course. And even to this day, the Eastern, the Orthodox churches do not allow instruments. It can only be the human voice. Uh, he mentions that on page, next page, page 159. But about a third of the way down, he says, in the West, in the form of Gregorian chant, the inherited tradition of psalm singing, inherited from the Jews, 
was developed to a new sublimity and purity, which set a permanent standard for sacred music, music for the liturgy of the church. Notice that he considers chant is the permanent standard. Uh, on the following page, page 160, he says the top of the page, the Council of Trent intervened in the culture war that had broken out. It was made a norm that liturgical music should be at the service of the word, capital W. The use of instruments was substantially reduced, and the difference between secular and sacred music was clearly affirmed. At the beginning of the last century, the 20th century, Pope St. Pius X made a similar intervention. And uh, the expression active participation, which occurs in chapter 14, or paragraph 14 of the Congregation, excuse me, of the Constitution of the Liturgy of the Second Vatican Council, uses that word, active participation. That word first occurred in a letter written by St. Pius X in 1903, one of the first things he wrote, Tra Le Sagittini, but it referred entirely to the restoration of Gregorian chant, that the people as well as the choir could sing the Mass. And that was Pius X's idea of the way to restore all things in Christ. That was his motto, Insurari Omni in Christo. Now, I just want to make that as a side note so that people talk about active participation. Just, it means jumping up and down and having greeters there and so on and so forth. Its primary, its primary original meaning is to incorporate liturgy, music and liturgy, which is according to the permanent standard of chant. Uh, I'm Father, off on my hobby horse here. Page 159, because I had a passage highlighted here. Um, Go. Speaks, speaks to what you've just said. Um, so it's three quarters of the way down, page 159. This is particularly clear in the case of the so-called parody masses, in which the text of the mass was set to a theme or melody that came from secular music, with the result that anyone hearing it might think he was listening to the latest hit. There's two things that strike me there. First of all, you know, a parody is something which uh, it usually, at least, subverts, right? So, you know, to talk about something being a parody of something else is normally, in some sense, subversive. So that's the first thing. And the idea of, of something sounding like the latest hit, you know, that refers in a broader sense to that which represents the latest fads and fashions or the spirit of the world or the spirit of the time, not the the timeless, ageless spirit of the church. So I, you know, I, I, I thought that the fact he uses the word parody and the word, word hit there uh, were applicable in that way. Yes, I, I skipped that paragraph, which I also went on because I, I, I read it last week. <laughs> but I, oh, you did? Yes, but I was in another little bit of other context. I was talking about the Carmelites of Cristo Rey who would sing – uh, the curier to Silent Night, uh, but in any event, it, it, that that's another dimension of the, which you uh, unfolded there. But what uh, we're seeing, it, what we're what I think is helpful for us to see, is that problems that we associate with you know the late twentieth century have been going on in the church from the beginning. Yes, where, uh, the the church is trying to hold the line, if you will, on what the essence of liturgy is and the proper way to worship God. And what's on the outside keeps trying to come in, you know, whatever the style of music. I mean, a lot of people would not think of a Mozart mass as 
uh, a parody and the latest hit. But in fact, that was the music of the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire at its height. And, and Mozart was in fashion and his music was in fashion. And so masses were, that was the fashion. And, and so right, even it can right still be right. beautiful. Wait, wait, let me just finish my point. Yeah. It can still be beautiful and yet still not appropriate to the essence of the liturgy. We right. tend to equate that fashion and everything is necessarily something like, I don't know, debauched or decadent or- Vulgar, yes. But some of these very beautiful things, in fact, may or may not belong uh, for the prayers of, of the church. A communion reflections piece might be something sung with a choir and polyphony and something from a great composer, but the actual prayers of the liturgy have to retain an essence. That's what I'm learning here about music from him, from Ratzinger. Yeah, but what I find, and I agree with you, there's nothing you say I disagree with, but, but in the middle of page 160, this is, this is intriguing, bearing in mind, you know, the, 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 the chant comes first and polyphony after that. Whether it is Bach or Mozart that we hear in church, we have a sense of either in either case of what Gloria Dei, the glory of God, means, right? Well, that's presumably uh, Cardinal Ratzinger being in favor of Bach um, and, and Mozart um, in, in the liturgy, or at least being played in church. I have no, no problem with the latter. But as regards the liturgy, I, I, the first thing I would say is, you know, I'm actually listening to uh, uh, Bach's St. Matthew's Passion this week in the card, because it seems appropriate. But, you know, but he's, his 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 mass um is uh is beautiful but it's extremely long um uh and the other thing is where do we draw the line because i think i mentioned last week how i could hear from the street uh the verdi's requiem being performed at the sheldonian theater in uh in oxford when i was there a couple of weeks ago a few weeks ago uh, and that's a beautiful piece of music but it sounds operatic um, and it's certainly to listen to and even to, to be edified by in terms of it being a requiem as a right. work of art is all marvellous. But does right. it well, belong think, you know, within the context of a real requiem mass being celebrated uh, in church is, is, is another issue. So where do we draw the line? I mean, Mozart gets, gets the check mark and, and Verdi doesn't. Well, I'm, not, I'm not really sure. I, well, I'm not even sure. I think we have to make a distinction, and I think Ratzinger is trying to do that. But, Father, you're the expert, so you can correct me where I'm off. I think <laughs> Ratzinger is trying to make a distinction between the actual prayers of the liturgy, you know, like the Santus and the Agnustei and, uh, and the parts of the Mass that are actually prayer. Those, that requires a different standard from simply, is it beautiful and uplifting and so on. I think... Um, because he even says about Mozart, um, but there are already signs of danger to come because it's now become, uh, the threat of invasion by the virtuoso mentality, the vanity of technique, which is no longer the servant of the whole, but wants to push itself to the fore. That is already starting with Mozart. Now you mentioned Bach. Bach, of course, is not a Catholic. So when he's setting St. Matthew's Passion to music, yes, it was played in church and people went to hear that, but that was not the Mass. No, uh, but I was referring to his Mass because he also composed the Mass. His Masses too, are they Catholic Masses or are they Lutheran services? I don't even know, but Bach is a Lutheran 
and writing for a Lutheran audience, which I love Bach. This is not any criticism of Bach at all. But I think I think the discernment that's needed here is even greater than just the standard of beauty. That's all I'm trying to say. Yeah. We'll return to the Forum Book Club with Father Joseph Fessio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, Tune in and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to the Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce. Father, yes, what and do you have to say about I, that? I, I agree with that. And also, uh, you know, there, there's Bach and there's Bach. So, for example, when I was a novice years ago, many years ago, 60 years ago or more, uh, we had a wonderful uh, priest, Father Carol Laubacher, who played the organ. And he would play Bach fugues during communion, just the fugues, you know. And it was a beautiful, prayerful music that helped you pray, you know. Uh, so that's different from having, you know, a Bach mass. Uh, but of course, and again, whether he's Lutheran or not, I mean, uh, he had 12 children, so he's pretty Catholic, uh, or 10 maybe. <laughs> uh, but okay, but, well, I'm only saying but, that. Well, wait, wait, but, but like I want to say that during I mean, communion, when, when, he, when, said, when he said during the actual prayers of the mass, right? Right. But I mean, when he, that's right. That's right. That, so, that's so there's the room in the mass 
for this meditative music, right? That that that's not. That's right. It could be the choir singing a polyphonic piece. That it could be an organ solo. It could be all kinds of things. I'm just trying to make the distinction between when the words of the mass are set to music. Does that not have a higher standard than other pieces of music that might be played during the course of the mass? It does, but I was the point I wanted to make was a Bach Sanctus because he's Lutheran compared to Mozart Sanctus because he's Catholic is irrelevant distinction. I mean, the Sanctus is Sanctus and music is music. So, oh, I agree uh, with that. I was only trying to explain that, like his yeah. Matthew's Passion is not the Mass. It's it's a completely separate musical yeah. uh, event in a church. Yeah, and that and that. I'm only trying to point out that not all of his music even was meant for mass. Whether he wrote an actual song to, sure. I if if we if it can be sung in church, I I don't have a problem with that. I I'm not one of those people who say Protestant music shouldn't be sung in church. I actually know people who don't want Amazing Grace sung in a Catholic church ever because it was written by a Protestant or some of the great hymns by Wesley or anything. It's like to me that's I don't know. I don't agree. <laughs> But, right, well, I, I make a distinction in there, too, though, because I, I love Amazing Grace. In fact, I play it on the banjo, but I wouldn't play that in church. I mean, Amazing Grace compared to the Wesleyan hymns, uh, it, it tends towards the sentimentality type thing, the emotional type thing, you know, even, even in the sounds that it has. So even there, I, I wouldn't oppose Amazing Grace in church because it's Protestant, but I would be res have a reservation because I think it's too subjective and sentimental. And that, the question a, is, what is, yeah, we, we get okay, a game. Okay, we sang it in church. I don't know which mass I was at, but it was sung as the, uh, I think, the recessional hymn or something, and it fit perfectly. I don't know. I didn't have a well, problem. I mean, uh, <laughs> I think I might have mentioned once that my worst example of, of uh, a communion hymn was uh, was uh, Lennon the McCartney's Let It Be at a mass in Milton Keynes in Buckinghamshire. <laughs> uh, that's how bad th things can get. Um, but, uh, you know, the, I, I would, there's this a distinction here. It, it, it's not Protestant if it's not heretical. In other words, you know, if, if, you if, if, if Johann Sebastian Bach has the, the words of the Sanctus exactly as it appears in the Mass and sets beautiful music to it, that's not a work of Protestant music. That's a work of Catholic music written by a Protestant. I mean, there's a difference, right? That's great. That's bravo to that, Joseph. I think that's great. All right. <laughs> We may end up spending three sessions on this. Music is so important. It also it engages people's uh, um, preferences and uh, even emotions. So going forward, page 161 or 147 in the older version, new paragraph there. Uh, After the cultural revolution of recent decades, we are faced with a challenge no less great than that of the three moments of crisis that we've encountered in our historical sketch, which are the Gnostic temptation, the crisis at the end of the Middle Ages, and the beginning of modernity. And, and excuse me, that's the second one, end of Middle Ages, beginning of modernity, and the crisis at the beginning of the 20th century. So he then goes on to say, three developments in recent music epitomize the problems that the church has to face when she's considering liturgical music. So he's going to outline the problems, and he's going to give what he thinks the answer is to those problems. So this is very important. First problem uh, is the cultural universalization the church has to undertake if she wants to go beyond the boundaries of the European mind. So uh, the church has to adapt to some extent 
to non-European cultures. Second problem towards the bottom of the page. Modern so-called classical music has maneuvered itself with some exceptions in an elitist ghetto because earlier, we were talking about the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the, the, these, this music was not the music of an elite. It was that, but it was much more. I mean, even today, you walk, that, you walk through Vienna and you, you hear concerts, you hear music in churches. I mean, ordinary people are listening to that music. Now, that's, that's changing and it's changed. And then finally, the bottom of the page, the music of the masses has broken loose and treads a very different path. Now he's going to divide the music of the masses into two types here, pop music, which by, I think he means by that like folk music or popular music, and then which he calls the cult of the banal, and then rock, which is the expression of elemental passions. Mm-hmm. So that's a problem he sees now. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, I, can I, uh, first of all, I, I, I want to quibble. Um, I mean, I, first of all, I love the fact that he, he breaks down. I love, I love it when people do this for us. It makes things much clearer how he breaks down the various crises in the history of the church. Um, that's very helpful. Um, but then the cultural university that the church has to undertake, if she wants to get beyond the boundaries of the European mind. I agree with that, but I don't think that um, uh, we should see Gregorian chant or sacred polyphony as something which is European. It's something which is sacred and therefore something which is universal. And, you know, the fact that that something springs from a certain geographical area does not therefore disqualify it from from universality if it's it's been effectively baptized uh, and, you know, inculcated within the sacred liturgy. So I, I, I think it's wrong to, I'm not saying Ratzinger is saying this, but, I, you know, were we to say that somehow or other, you know, that Gregorian chant is European or, or polyphony is European, it isn't. It's Catholic. Well, it, it's both. I mean, it happens to have its origin in Europe. Well, yes, I, well, actually, chant has its origin in Asia because it's, it's, it's Hebrew. But uh, that's a very point made by Pope Pius X in that, document I referred to previously, he said that there, there's three criteria for sacred music, and the chant is the standard to measure those by, and one of them is universality, that it's not something which uh, will appear uh, out, out of sync with uh, a, a good culture. Uh, so he, he does emphasize that very fact of chant being a universal form of music. So, I could, But on the other hand, uh, you know, the Byzantine church does not use Gregorian chant. They got a different kind of chant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so the, 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 the church has already adapted, in a sense, to a Byzantine culture with music that stems from their particular, you know, historical origin. So I would take this even further, Carl. I mean, on a much lower level, I would say that the great books – are not European insofar as, as these various, and they come from various cultures. So you know, Homer's Greek and Virgil is pagan Roman and Dante is you know, mid, mid, middle age, mid, middle ages, medieval uh, uh, Italy, etc. Shakespeare's early modern English, but insofar and diff- they all, they, and, and in different languages. Okay. Uh, but insofar as each of them transcends uh, the particular culture with the universal truths that emerge, they become universal. And so, you know, to say that, that, that Shakespeare doesn't belong in Asia, 
you know, I think is to misunderstand what Shakespeare's doing because he's not doing something which is particularly or peculiar to early modern England. He's doing something which is universal because it's about who we are as human beings. But I think this point about a cult in cultures enculturation. So I, I'm just the the thing that comes to my mind right now is that the French Jesuit missionaries in North America teaching the natives they found there the Catholic faith and to pray and to sing and so on in a Christian way. <clears throat> and one of the songs that comes down to us from, I think it was written by Father Braywolf or Father Yogues or whatever, the Huron Carol, which uses the, uh, the, the a, a kind of melody line from the native, whatever their folk music sounded like or whatever, but it's clearly an elevated, it's been taken up into Christ. I mean, I think, it takes tremendous discernment of spirits to be able to, and, and it's hard to come up with just hard and fast rules. This is what, but this song is so beautiful. And you can just imagine this small community of neophyte Christians and this Jesuit hero singing this song at Christmas with no instruments in a, in a wigwam. And that's enculturation. You've taken something that was the best that they had. And you've elevated into Christ, and you know. But that—that's the whole point I'm saying. That 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 applies. Uh, would go that it's not particularly or peculiarly Huron any longer. It's transcendental, uh, and it's um, universal. That yes. Um, so now that, that song, anyone can sing that song exactly. anywhere in the world who's, who's exactly. a Christian. Exactly. So it doesn't belong to Native American culture in a peculiar sense, even if that's where its roots are. That's yes. exactly what I'm saying. So, for instance, Roy Campbell translated the beautiful Zulu song. And I thank God that he did because Zulus didn't have a written culture, so it's all oral. He translates this beautiful Zulu song, and it allows me to have an insight into Zulu culture. And insofar as that speaks to me, it's because it's universal and transcends Zulu culture. We had a brief technological interruption here. Uh, Prior to that, Joseph, you had talked about the great books being not European, but universal. Uh, I think that's a, those are fighting words, probably. Uh, but we're talking about music, and that led us into the idea of culture uh, and enculturation and the mass and so on. Uh, I, I want to spend a little time on that. Uh, we, you talked about Shakespeare you know, being important for the world. It's true. In, in Germany... Uh, there is a translation of Shakespeare into German, which is itself a classical German work. Uh, I, I'm not sure how that works in Chinese or, or Swahili or, or other things. I mean, it, it is it has to do with European history and European uh, concepts and so on. So I'm not. There's universality of Shakespeare, but there's also a particularity to it. Uh, maybe maybe it's like the incarnation, the scale of particularity. Uh, when it comes to music, let's take that as an example. Uh, it's the 12-tone scale is not something which is uh, it's part of nature in the sense that it's the only scale you can have prior to 29 tones in an octave in which you can have melodies because of the way the human ear works. You know, we, we, we naturally think of an octave as a pleasing uh, interval and a third, and a fifth, and so on. Uh, so that's something which was discovered by Europeans, and therefore is European history, but it's universal in the sense that it is 
it's the way the human ear works uh, to get melody. Uh, so now, hmm, I'm yeah, wondering I mean, off on that. Oh, they fight, fight, fight my say, you know, if, from the point of view of someone who doesn't like Western culture and might argue against what you're saying, no one's going to argue against the fact that um, Europeans discovered that um, E equals MC squared, and therefore our understanding of energy and physics is dependent upon the fact that a European uh, discovered it. I mean, clearly what's been discovered is something which is universally applicable, irrespective of, the, of, of who happened to come across the idea, you know? Yes, but I think uh, a, a physical formula is not quite the same thing as a poem. You know what I mean? Well, there is, there is, there is. I agree. You agree completely. There's the diff, difficulty with translation, the difficulty with language, uh, and and that's absolutely true. But in so far as it can be translated, should we say close to perfectly, as you apparently say that the German uh, translation of Shakespeare is is itself a classic work. In so far as that can be done, I think perhaps. Roy Campbell's translations of the poetry of St. John of the Cross into English. You know, I can, I, I am then, I then have access to this beautiful mystical poetry by a great Carmelite saint, thanks to the translation. Now, a shadow has fallen. It's not the same. But the point is that that, that obstacle can be largely overcome, and the universality of the thing itself can then shine through. So, so I think we've probably exhausted ourselves and our listeners in the time we have, but I want to give Vivian the last word here. And we're going to have a third session and conclude this chapter because the next part is precisely, uh, he, asked, he asked the question, what is to be done? So that's important. We get to that. We'll do that next session. But Vivian, do you want to comment on? Uh, I just want to say that maybe it's not a case of either or, but both and. Because Jesus is leading all men to the Father. So we're all making our way through Christ to the Father, where everything will be will be will be one. Everything that can be purified will be purified. And so uh there it is. All right. And we can we one thing we can say for sure that Christ was not a European. That's right. So with that, uh ladies and gentlemen and uh, we will conclude this session and hope to see you uh, next time. God bless you all. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.